Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, coming to you again from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks. Today on The Energy Gang, we're going to be talking about an event on the fringes of the COP28 meetings, which is being co-hosted by Edinburgh Science and Wood Mackenzie. And it's a discussion on climate finance. The title is Delivering on the Promise of Climate Finance at Last. Uh, the reason we've chosen that title is because there has been a long-running failure to achieve goals that have been set for climate finance. Back in 2009, rich countries made a commitment that $100 billion a year should flow to low- and middle-income countries to help support climate mitigation and adaptation. And that target has never formally been achieved. The most in any year recorded by the OECD was about $90 billion in 2021. Now, to be fair, initial estimates suggest that the $100 billion may have been reached, in fact, last year, but this has not yet been confirmed. Now, negotiations are underway over a new pledge to replace that commitment, which is called the New Collective Quantified Goal, and that's intended to take effect from 2025. And meanwhile, there's yet another financial mechanism, which was the Loss and Damage Fund that was launched last year. And one of the first decisions that came out of COP28 was that secured its first commitments of a few hundred million dollars. I think 600 million was one of the numbers that's been flying around. Uh, and that was, as I say, announced here on day one of the COP. As we said, those numbers are pretty small compared to $100 billion, even smaller compared to the estimates of hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars in damages that are estimated to have been caused by climate change every year. But still, the principle of making some progress on getting financing for that fund is certainly significant. Finance has been one of the biggest issues for low- and middle-income countries in particular in taking part in the global effort to address climate change. And that's why it's the subject we're going to be focusing on today. And we're really raising the question of whether we can be on the verge of a breakthrough that could help accelerate progress and deliver on that promise of climate finance at last. And to discuss that with me today, I'm joined by Nigel Topping, who was the UN's high-level champion for COP26 a couple of years ago in Glasgow. He's now on the UK's Climate Change Committee, and he's also director of the UK Infrastructure Bank. And we're also going to be talking to Mohamed Sultan, who's the regional lead for Africa at the Global Methane Hub, which is a non-profit working on ways to reduce methane emissions. Before we hear from them, though, let's hear from Patricia Espinosa, who was also speaking at this Edinburgh Science Wood Mackenzie event. She's the former executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and she's now an ambassador emeritus for Mexico. And she talked about global attitudes to climate finance and suggested that many people had a fundamentally misguided approach. This is really the time where we need to have a complete different mindset. What do I mean by that? It's a time where we need to really uh, acknowledge and we need leaders to acknowledge that this, it is not about how much can you, can you pledge, how, how much money will you be able to, um, to contribute. Why? Because that's the, the same mindset that of the past, right? This is a time where we need leaders to really acknowledge that it is not about giving others helping others. It is about investing in our own future. 
So that point about needing to rethink the world's approach to climate finance was also highlighted by my guest now, Nigel Topping, who talked about the way that we should be thinking about not so much the quantity of climate finance as the quality of it. Nigel was the UN's high-level champion for COP26, the climate talks in Glasgow a couple of years ago, and he's also now on the board of the UK Infrastructure Bank, and he's also a member of the UK's Climate Change Committee. Nigel, thanks very much for joining us. So you're here at this event, going to be delivering what's called a provocation. This is something which is meant to kind of get people talking and perhaps get people thinking about the issue of climate finance in a way they haven't been thinking about it before. What are you going to be saying? Well, I'm, I'm really going to be saying that we need to get much more sophisticated in the way we think about climate finance in emerging markets. And in particular, we need to think not just about the quantum, although it's very important that a lot more is needed, but also the quality. Um, and in particular, that debt layered on debt layered on debt does not solve the problem. I mean, for example, this year, the net flow of finance from the multinational development banks to emerging developing markets will be zero, and next year it will be negative. In other words, the poorest countries in the world will be paying money to the richest countries in the world to move backwards. So it'll be running to go move, move, move backwards because the principal and debt re repayments, because uh, interest rates have gone up, are going to be greater than the disbursements. Um, and a lot of the figures that you hear of the wealthy countries in the world committing to climate finance are our debt. And and so the emerging developing countries don't need more debt. They, they, they do need some grants, but they also need cheaper debt and equity. So people actually taking a risk and in investing in in projects. So there's, we, we have a massive rewiring project for the global financial system. And it's not just chasing some bigger numbers. It's, a, it's, it's much more profound than that. That is very interesting. So as you say, a lot of the focus of the debate has been around the numbers. There's this famous yeah. $100 billion that was pledged back in 2009, which was meant to be money flowing from rich countries to poor and middle-income countries to help them with climate mitigation and adaptation. World's never quite got to that number. I think the best year was 2021, when we got to about 90 billion. I think, I think a general consensus, well, there's not consensus, that's part of the problem, because there's no agreed methodology. But the, but the most recent reports just that we got there in 2022, like two years later. Right. Okay. okay. So as you say, not 100% clear, but probably did but, but, finally get there after... But that lack of agreement years. really matters, right? Because if some people say, yeah, we got there 100, and other people say, actually, we only got to 20 because we don't count. We only count grants, we don't count loans, then then you'll never, you'll never agree. So yeah, we maybe scrape over the line, but contentiously. Right. And then people are talking then about what replaces that 100 billion a year pledge. And there's yeah. this thing, the new collective quantified goal, which is meant to start from 2025. And for that, I've heard huge numbers, or much larger numbers anyway, being banded around that I think 400 billion was one number, numbers into the trillions I've heard proposed as being kind of equal to the scale of the challenge what would be needed. But you're saying what, that really that kind of focus on the amounts on these headline numbers is misplaced? Well, I would say that the the thing that has singularly most contributed to the lack of flow to emerging markets has been the obsession on 100 billion. It's a very small part of the solution. It's ill-defined and it just sucks all the oxygen out of the conversation. And it's, and it's, it's, um, it stems from a, from a zero sum mentality. Like the less, the more we give, the less we have. It's not where, where the solution to climate justice is massively non-zero sum. Like the quicker we solve it, the better for everybody. The slower we solve it, the worse for everybody. Of course, it was made in good. It was it was made in good faith as an attempt to move along and create some accountability. But the but the fact that it's as Mac, my colleague Mahmoud Mahidin, who's the Egyptian high-level champion for COP27, 
would say is that is that the level of climate finance at the moment is insufficient. So it's just not enough. It's inefficient. It's getting hardly any leverage, and and it's and the whole system is un, is unfair. So even if we'd got to two hundred billion, we'd be we'd be in a, we wouldn't be in a much better place. So what, what one thing which Mahmoud and I and the COP twenty six and COP twenty seven presidencies did last year was to commission Verda Songwe, who's then the head of the UN Economic Commission for Africa, and Nick Stern, the, the UK's leading climate and I think the world's I think leading climate economist, to publish a paper looking at the problem from what I would call an engineering perspective, like what do we actually need to do? How much money does it need to get that done? And where's that money going to come from? So it's a, it's a, it's a problem solution back rather than a, how much do we think we could squeeze out of the rich countries kind of mentality. And, that, and there we come to a figure of 2.4 trillion a year in, in 2030, you know, ramping up, which is basically four times where we're at now. And that's then broken down between um, international multi and bilateral finance, which needs to roughly treble. Um, uh, domestic finance, it turns out 60% of the money needs to come from the countries themselves, from their own sovereigns and from their own capital markets. Um, and then private capital, of course, all these things overlap. A lot of private money, a lot of local money, and and some catalytic, which is this point, Mahmoud's point about inefficiency, that for every dollar of multilateral finance at the moment, we get less than 20 cents of private sector capital crowded in. Most, A lot of it is crowding out private capital because it, people are obsessing with deployment numbers rather than impact, which comes from leverage and actually solving the problems. So so uh, and 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 uh, Nick Stenvera Songway and Amabatachari have just published the the second version of their paper which has the same basic numbers but which gets into much more detail about what's needed to unlock all that flow because it's not just a matter of 10 people opening up their checkbooks it's it's very complex systemic we do need significant increases in capital in the development banking system that and there's various ways of doing that so that's one thing Every dollar of development finance needs to be leveraged much more. So we, we we should really stop talking about how much money the World Bank's deployed itself and start talking about how much it's deployed via the leverage of what it's spent. So you hear, you start when you really get into talking to practitioners in the market, you hear this sort of story all the time of someone doing some really good work to get a project to the point where it's investable um, and having a multilateral bank not having been involved at all. And then when they find out that it's investable, they come along and they... Um, at, you know, at 20 basis points below market, take the whole debt on. So that, that's, that's a sort of negative leverage, right? So what we, what we should be doing is really incentivizing the multilateral. We should be providing them with the capital to do more, making sure that they're being held accountable for doing more with it. And I think, frankly, often they could do that by giving that to some of the very effective organizations like the, the, like, like the Global Infrastructure Facility or like the um, Private Infrastructure Development Group, which are donor-funded but more agile and I think still have the mission of development heart. We we need to then help countries develop their capital markets so that they can issue sovereign bonds and that they have the institutions and the policies in place, which will attract local investors and international private capital. But none of that will happen in straight lines because everything is reinforcing everything else. But I think this second paper from Stern and Songwei and Bhattacharya has really laid out what you might call an action agenda for climate finance. And how do you get around that problem you were identifying earlier about debt, about debt essentially being part of the problem because the cost of debt service then become yeah. a drain on the resources of these countries? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of number of technical things that, that, that can happen and are happening to a certain extent. So one, we're seeing a growing number of like debt for nature or debt for climate swaps where 
there's maybe a direct reduction in uh, i was just interviewing mia motlin she was describing they've done a debt for nature and they're going to do a debt for climate swap so the providers of the loans agree to write off some of their loans in exchange for a commitment from the country to invest some of what they've saved in better climate management or better nature management which in, in turn makes the repayment of the remainder of the loans more likely there are things like sustainability linked bonds where the governments like uruguay and chile have issued bonds which um where the coupon, the interest payment, is linked to how well they're doing at implementing the climate policies. And, and the investors like that because it shows that the government's on the hook for implementing their policy with a financial penalty if they don't do it. Um, we need we need more lower-cost long-term finance. Um, many middle-income countries who actually actually who need more capital, right, are then are then are then penalised because they don't have access to such uh, um, forms. And another, there's a very particular problem when when a country has quite lumpy debt repayments. That they then may they may run into a liquidity problem. So say you say you took out uh, a very big loan five years ago when interest rates were very low, and it but it comes due now when interest rates are very high. That's a disaster, right? So in more liquid markets, there and there are facilities to help smooth that out. So there's so, so very strong ways that there's an African facility. So and then getting and attracting international investors like um, international companies to invest off their balance sheets, so that the debt is the debt is the international companies, not the sovereign. I mean, so there's lot there's lots of different things that, that can and need to be done. And in terms of those kind of better models and more robust and workable models for climate finance, did you see the announcement? I think it was a couple of days ago from government of the UAE and others, there was this number of $30 billion, yeah. which was meant to be kind of attracted essentially in private financing, yeah. as far as I could tell. Exactly to your point, this is money which is being kind of uh, attracted by multilateral development bank financing. So essentially, it's that point about trying to get positive leverage out of multilateral development bank financing. Is that kind of putting into practice some of the principles you're talking about? Is that, is that yeah, that's a that's that's a big amount, and it's got some very big um, private sector partners. I can't remember, but Brookfield certainly one of them. Mark, Mark Carney's the chair. I think what that does, you then have private finance, which is looking for projects. It's very different from projects and multilaterals looking for private finance. It's really really important because what we tend to what people tend to think of is is these big institutions as being flashy checkbooks. Now they do have big checkbooks. But but they have very skilled people who know how to structure deals to make them to make them work. I mean, it's not an entirely extractive system. It, you know, the, the, these the, the the difference between equity and credit and mezzanine and 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 convertible loan notes. All these they they've all emerged because they actually solve problems. And we need to start seeing financiers not as people who are sitting on piles of cash, although that that is partly true, but people who are the guardians of those piles of cash via their help in structuring. Solutions. I think it's very exciting when we start getting big commitments to deploy capital, because then that means that capital is going to go looking for problems to solve, which will lead to transactions. And I've just come from a session with several of those funds that already exist that are a bit frustrated by everyone saying it's too difficult because they're already doing it. And people are already making money, finding not every project in every country in Africa is investable, right? But that doesn't mean there's no investable projects in Africa. What are the kinds of projects that are investable then? Then where are the great opportunities? Well, there there are of course renewable energy. Um, uh, very excitingly, we're hearing from, you know Namibia, which you know, a country with a relatively small population, large landmass, so m coastal, massive renewable opportunity, and they're converting that into a massive hydrogen 
opportunity and then using that hydrogen to take African iron ore and do the first stage of reduction using green hydrogen. So you get the power, the iron ore, the hydrogen and the first stage of steel production all being done on African soil instead of just digging up the iron ore and sending it to some somewhere else. Um, and, there, and, and there are, there are um, again, um, Leap, Leapfrog um, is, a, is, a, is a fund which is specifically looking at the emerging middle classes in Africa. People are currently on under $11 a day and what are the solutions that they need you know um the sort of leapfrog to electric vehicles two and three wheel or to coal chain solutions that allow farmers to um, take many much more of their product to market and time it to get the price or solar irrigation pumps which double or treble farming yield so there are company those, those so there are companies providing those solutions and there are big infrastructure projects which are are being invested in now and are attracting more money and need to really ramp up but the opportunities are there for the people with the courage and the intellect and the problem solving ability to go and find them. And just to take a step back then, when you think about everything that's happening at COP28, and when you think about the global effort on climate change, how important a part of it is climate finance, do you think? And, you know, when you think about these discussions, all the negotiations that are being had, the kind of things you're looking at and that you've been talking about now, how central is that to as I say, this broader effort of how do we avoid catastrophic outcomes for a changing climate? Uh, I mean, everything's interconnected, but I think it's getting close to being 100% important because we're, increasingly we know what the solutions are. And, and you know, there's this weird term in the ENFCCC of means of implementation. But means of implementation is money. And the money flows when it's enabled by good policies and good projects and good technologies. But we largely have the technologies now and what we need to do is get on with deploying them at massive scale and very very fast so i mean that's why i'm putting more and more of my effort into this question of how do we deploy the capital and a lot of that is about how do we recognize that actually we know how to solve the problems but we just we need more brain power from all parts of the ecosystem from policymakers from bankers from pension funds from technology providers from from young entrepreneurs to be seeing that there's opportunities when we roll our sleeves up and work together to deploy those solutions. Nigel Topping, thanks very much. Welcome. Thanks very much for that, Nigel. Great talking to you. I'm joined now by Mohamed Sultan, who's the regional lead for Africa at the Global Methane Hub. As I was saying earlier, that's a non-profit organization working on solutions for reducing methane emissions around the world. Mohamed, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So start off, perhaps you could introduce yourself a little bit. Um, tell me about the Global Methane Hub. What does it do? Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm the African lead at the Global Methane Hub. The Global Methane Hub is a philanthropic initiative that was started about a year and a half ago through the combined efforts of 20 plus philanthropies across, across the world, mostly US and uh, European Union, to sort of seize this moment where the impact of methane on heating the planet became more and more apparent and them recognizing that there's probably need for faster, more coordinated, more catalytic action at the government level, within the private sector, within civil society. And so we're a pooled fund and we have the sort of benefit of and luxury, I would say, and high pressure of distributing these resources to people and organizations that are doing incredible work to try to attain this objective, which is to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030 globally. And what's your budget? How much are you giving out? <laughs> I never talk about numbers because I think that the climate space is riddled with numbers and a scale is hard to understand. But the initial endowment, I think, was around $250 million for a few years and it's gone up a little bit. So it's not uh, inconsequential to the contrary. When you look at the landscape, it is a big investment 
And you're the lead for Africa. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the projects you're backing in Africa then? What kind of things are you doing? Yeah, so it's interesting. So we're only about a year and a half old. And so a lot of the initial investments, so I should probably say a little bit about methane. It's useful to understand then how we are making decisions about allocating resources. Of course, we work on three sectors, anthropogenic methane. So methane that is dependent on human action comes from the waste sector. So the decaying organics in particular, improper management of, of landfills comes from the agricultural sector, which is through livestock production and in a smaller part, rice production. And then through the energy sector. So oil and gas and coal all emit substantial amounts of, of methane. And the distribution of emissions globally differs widely by sector. And so Africa's contribution to methane emissions is actually higher. Its emission profile is higher than its contribution of CO2 emissions, carbon emissions. And so it is also very concentrated, right? There are a few countries in the energy sector, for example, you've got four or five countries that account for the bulk of the emissions, probably 75%. And these are large oil and gas producers. In the livestock sector, in the agricultural sector, you will find that large livestock nations, uh, East Africa, uh, Sahel, obviously contribute more. So we've begun by really focusing on, on a few things. One is this underlying structural question of what helps us understand, measure, track, and address methane better. So this is, how do we understand it? So this is all the measurement capacity through satellite detection, through a remote sensing. We're very much involved in making sure that we're getting more transparent, more accountable data on what's being emitted, where, by whom, so that we can target action. Uh, the second is understanding sort of the, the technical and scientific opportunities to reduce it. In the oil and gas sector, for example, you know, the, the solutions are, are fairly... I wouldn't say simple because nothing is simple, but the technical solutions exist. We know them and a lot of people will say that they're cost effective, that varies a lot depending who you are and where you sit. And then in the in the agricultural sector, it's much more difficult because you've got millions, if not billions of organisms that emit. And so the scientific consensus leans towards certain things, but there's a lot of research and development that needs to happen to do a few things. One is to confirm that there's no adverse effects, to really look at the ways in which it can be deployed in specific contexts. Cattle is very different from region to region. And then obviously it has to be cost effective for farmers. It has to make sense for the people whose livelihoods, particularly on the continent, are dependent upon that industry. And so we very much think about it as a, a climate imperative, but also a developmental question. And on the continent, we provide technical assistance facility. We're one of the largest funders of the United Nations Environmental Programs Climate and Clean Air Coalition that is providing immense technical support to develop policy roadmaps on reduction of emissions across the sectors. We work with the Clean Air Task Force, who's also providing technical support and capacity, utilization of detection tools, of planning tools. We recently begun working with the African Center for Energy Policy to try to understand the political economy of action on methane in Africa, in both existing producers and in countries that are just beginning sort of their, their extraction. I should say that, it, and this is important to say, I believe that the, on the energy front, of course, we believe that the long-term game is a substantial reduction in the utilization of fossil fuel as part of your energy mix. Of course, we believe that there's a fundamental need to do that, and that is a long game, and the long game is also to decarbonize. And we locate methane action within that spectrum. It is an element that helps us get a little bit more time, but that also opens doors to hopefully be able to really robustly engage on energy transitions at large in a way that makes sense, particularly for uh, poor and developing countries. Uh, but that also puts a lot more pressure on those that have the ability, the capacity, the resources to do a lot more and a lot faster. I could go on. So we've, we've funded about 80 different projects over a year with a fantastic team based out of Chile and then across the world. 
really fund some things that I, I think are useful in the space and elevate public debate as well. Thank you. That's really fascinating and very interesting to hear about your work. Now, you are at this event delivering on the promise of climate finance, and you've been asked to deliver what they're calling a provocation, a kind of provocative set of ideas to get the debate going and to get people talking. What is it that you're saying when you uh, want to make a provocative point that you think is something people perhaps might not want to hear or need to kind of engage with in a way that they're not engaging with at the moment? What are you saying? Well, surprisingly, I don't even know if it's a provocation because it makes so much sense to me. But my provocation is that we live in a very fractured world where national interests, of course, often take precedence over collective interests. And my provocation is that without greater partnership, collaboration, and inclusion, we're going to make climate work more costly, slower, and probably less fair and just than it should be. So as you say, in one sense, that seems sort of obvious. And as you say, intuitively, feels like it must be right. Climate change is a global problem. It has to be addressed globally. And the world has to work together to address those issues. But as you say, we live in a fractured world. Countries also have national interests. Individuals have their own interests, as well as the interests that we all share as a planet. When you talk about the world being fractured, do you think it's becoming more fractured? I mean, what are the kind of the trends or are we moving actually towards greater collaboration, do you think? Yeah, I think it's very nuanced. I think there's more fracture in many ways. There's in some ways greater distance, less dialogue. We're also seeing many parts of the world, unfortunately, more conflict, violent conflict emerge. And you know, in many of the areas within climate, there's a, a growing sense of polarization. At the same time, it's not all gloomy. There are many instances in which countries have come together and are coming together. We've seen some here at COP. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, people thought that the loss and damage fund was essentially a joke, that it was never going to really come to fruition. Now, of course, we can debate the state, but the fact that it's on the table, that we're now discussing sort of the ability to fund it at the right scale is also the result of, some would say, forced collaboration, but it is a result of negotiations. It is a result of more attention being paid to parties. And so I think we are fractured in many ways, but we're also interconnected in many, many other ways. And that interconnectedness from an economic perspective, particularly, is kind of what is leading countries or folks to want to maybe regain a little bit more independence from others and maybe secure a little bit more control over what would be, say, a transition within a climate-friendly or low-carbon transition. Yeah, so that's an interesting thought then. So you mean what we're seeing, you think, a sort of a, a backlash to international and collective action, that's a part of what we've seen in terms of, I think, what a lot of people would identify as a resurgence of nationalism over the past 10 or 20 years or so. Yeah, I think um, so. You think that's partly driven? I, I think in some ways we have seen it. I mean, I think before the Ukraine crisis, the term energy security was not a common term. It has become one now, particularly in countries that were heavily affected by the disruption in energy flows. And energy security is, a, is an important and loaded term, and it has consequences. And so we are seeing, I think, uh, countries wanting to be more in control of what they believe are critical elements of their society. Uh, whether it's energy or other areas. And so the fact that there has been integration and the fact that the energy transition in some ways is going to force us to uh, coordinate more, particularly because the value chains are different, is challenging. So I think one of the things that's happened, one of the trends that I would certainly identify in climate policy, particularly in developed countries in recent years, is an attempt, if you like, to harness those impulses for national control and energy security 
to the climate agenda. And if you look at what's happened in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, if you look at a lot of what the EU has been doing, if you look at the Repower EU plan, if you look at what the EU's now done with the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, the CBAM, these are policies which sort of governments are offering to their electorates as having a kind of a double dividend. It's good for the climate and it'll help reduce emissions and it'll also strengthen our economies, it'll create jobs and it'll reinforce energy security. That's even a triple dividend, if you like. And as I say, serving both kind of global and national or regional objectives. And that, I think, seems to a lot of people like a very compelling offering. And I think that's a big part of the reason why we're seeing these governments in Europe and the US support that kind of agenda. Do you have sympathy for why they're doing that? I mean, do you think it makes sense for them to pursue those kind of policy strategies? And do you see downsides to it? Of course, it makes sense. As I said, I come from Africa and we've been talking about industrial policy for decades now. It's nothing new. And in many ways, a lot of these attempts are sort of versions of industrial policy to reignite economic activity within borders. And so I think it makes total sense. And I think in many ways, it also makes sense because that's exactly what the rest of the world is asking, that we do not dissociate climate action and the well-being and the dignity of people through economic opportunity as well. And so I understand. I think the litmus test for a lot of these initiatives is that climate is not a national imperative, it is a global imperative. And so the litmus test is whether or not, let's take the energy space, for example, whether these initiatives are going to bring down the cost, let's say, of renewables in the developing world as they're bringing it down or as they're creating more opportunity nationally. If they're not bringing that cost down substantially in the developing world, then we're going to have a climate problem on our hand again. And so if you're sitting on the continent and you've got 40 to 60% of the best solar renewable opportunity and 1% of climate finance investments in renewables goes to the continent. Africa as a whole generated less renewable energy than Belgium last year. And so I think the disparity is huge. It's 1.4 billion people. It's going to be two, it's going to be two and a half. Right now, 600 million don't have access to even basic electricity. And so I think the scale up and the rapid, rapid scale up of renewables in particular, alongside the reduction in fossil fuel consumption, alongside the management of emissions in current operations, alongside the electrification as part of a broader package that includes you know, access and distribution to rural communities is going to be fundamental. And if that cost doesn't come down, we're going to have a problem. If the cost of technology doesn't come down, if the cost of rolling it out, it's going to be very difficult to meet objectives collectively. So how do you make progress on that agenda then? You're here at COP28 in Dubai. All the world's climate policymakers are gathered here. Many leading energy companies, companies from other industries, investors, bankers, multilateral development banks, everyone has come to this city for this week. And you have an opportunity to make that point to them, talk about the opportunity. As you say, there's a renewable opportunity. There's also the opportunity to reduce methane emissions and that big part of the agenda that you're specifically working on yourself. What could be done in order to get that capital to flow and, as you say, to get the costs of renewable energy investment down to the level where you are going to get an accelerated transition to that low carbon energy in Africa, which, as you say, is so crucial? Yeah, it's a really tough question <laughs> to address. But first of all, I will also say that on top of the sort of the groups that you mentioned that are here at COP, there's also a large part of civil society and non-state actors that play a fundamental role in ensuring that there's greater accountability over commitments that have been now made over and over again. And I stress this because I think it is really, really fundamental that this be not only a financing or a policy question, it is a societal question. And I think the ability for non-state actors, particularly civil society, to push is really critical in helping us move forward. But to your question about how do we move, 
unfortunately, it's complex and we have to do multiple things simultaneously, things that we're not necessarily good at doing. And so one is obviously the financing question, and, and that depends where you are. But I really argue that uh, between multilateral development banks, but also private sector and also insurance companies and underwriters and even credit rating agencies, there needs to be a much more concerted effort to understand emerging markets much, much better. One of the reasons why there's a risk premium that then leads to an increased cost of capital is I think there's lack of information, lack of data. Uh, the African Union has set out to even create its own credit rating agency because it believes that there is an improper evaluation of risk in the continent that is limiting its ability. So on the cost of capital, there needs to be more concerted action and more clarity and more transparency for the processes that are used to assess risk. Inevitably, on the multilateral development sort of bank front that are there's also a big source of funding, I think it's happening. The, the reforms that we're seeing can be useful, but there needs to be a lot more intent and there also needs to be a recapitalizing of the resources. And we need to direct them where they need to go and be clear about that. And that's an example of how, I guess you could say, climate is such a difficult issue to address because it is so multifaceted and touches so many areas of the global economy and of politics and of society and of everybody's lives. And so, as you say, when you start to think about the operation of the multilateral development banks and their operations and all the controversies we've had about their operations for many decades now. If you're saying now we need to think again about what they do and to reassess their role. I mean, they're doing it. Yeah, uh, There's already a process ongoing because they realize, to use this phrase that everyone uses, to be fit for purpose. You've got to be thinking about not only the stock of capital that you have available, but also the administrative ways in which the capital flows. It's not the harp in the World Bank, but how much does it take the World Bank to even get a project out? It can be two, three, four years. <laughs> so, And the reality is that there's urgency. And so I think there is an advanced reflection. I, I hope that it yields and I hope that we're paying attention to the people that ultimately would need to benefit. There's been a number of initiatives, the redirecting of the special drawing rights as well uh, after the pandemic. It, these are all important factors, but there needs to be, I think, a lot more coherence in the way that the money is being thought of and used. So a final thought, how optimistic would you describe yourself as being then given, as you say, there are changes happening, there is a greater understanding of the issues, there is very visibly here at COP28, a very broad global consensus, strongly in favour of climate action. You could say, certainly, there are some positive signs. It's not entirely true that the world is just kind of fragmenting and fracturing and breaking up into mutually opposed blocks. There are definitely still grounds for optimism in terms of collective action and countries being able to work together. What is your sense of how ready we really are as a world to address climate change in the sense of getting on a trajectory for emissions that means we're going to avoid the most catastrophic outcomes? Yeah. So I am more optimistic than maybe the last half hour <laughs> I may have led to believe. As I said, the fact that we are seeing some things being discussed today, like the loss and damage fund, like the acceleration of renewables, like the cost of capital, countries coming together and having common positions, uh, 70,000 people here at COP, I think is a sign that things can be done, even amidst sort of competing interests. I was very encouraged by the US-China declaration on joint effort on climate. We're seeing more and more of that. And um we saw in the past couple of days a lot of commitments around cooperation on methane action, just to give an example, because it's been quite prominent. But I'm a very pragmatic person. I think we have to be clear-eyed about what we're discussing. We have to seize opportunities when we can, but there's going to have to be compromises across the board. And no one's going to be able to get exactly what they want if we want all of us <laughs> to be able to continue to live and enjoy life in a dignified way. And I'm hopeful that we're going to be a bit more creative. But I'm also extremely cautious 
extremely cautious about letting the guard down, about the idea that more money will essentially fixate the idea that one thing will be a silver bullet. I think we've got to continue to be driven by an objective, but complex in the way that we're addressing the questions and fair and just. And to be clear about that, when you say there's a danger of us letting our guard down, what do you mean by that? As I said, we've got to do multiple things to be able to get to the objective. Reducing methane is, is an extremely important thing, but alongside reducing methane, we've got to reduce the consumption of fossil fuels. We've got to increase electrification. We've got to increase access to renewables largely, largely. And they all have to go hand in hand. And so I want to be cautious about making sure that we are cognizant of the fact that all of this has to happen, not one thing. Well, certainly, I guess you could say that is a sobering assessment of the challenge that lies ahead of us. But it has been fascinating talking to you. Great to hear your insights and to have you share, in particular, your thoughts on what needs to happen in Africa for the energy transition in particular. Mohamed Sultan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Mohamed Sultan, thanks very much. Thanks very much also to Nigel Topping for joining us on The Energy Gang today. And thanks very much to Patricia Espinosa for joining us at this Edinburgh Science Wood Mackenzie event. Above all, as always, thanks very much to all of you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with all the latest news and views from COP28. Until then, goodbye.